0: And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. Three, two, one. It's the Novos Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've gotta be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. And it is time again for Tratcast, the traditional Roman Catholic podcast like no other. Ignore it at your own risk. This is episode number 20. The last one in 2017. Thank you for tuning in. As the years progress, especially with Francis at the helm of the Novus Ordo sect, the news that's coming out of the Vatican is getting increasingly absurd. I can't find suitable adjectives anymore... To describe what we're witnessing, the Twilight Zone is reality TV compared to what is going on in the modernist dens in Rome. If you've been keeping an eye on our website, novusordowatch.org, and especially if you review the news digests we put out about once or twice a month, where we give you a roundup of the latest, craziest stuff coming from the modernist church— then you'll know exactly what I mean. Just take, for example, the abominable travesty of a nativity scene that was set up in St. Peter's Square. I mean, you could not allow your children to see it. In our post on the topic, we called it the Frankie Horror Picture Show, and for good reason. Now, I don't want to get into all the details. You can just read about them in our post if you're, if you're not aware yet of what this is all about. It's sorted stuff. Okay, let's just say that as was reported by LifeSite News on December 20th, there is an LGBT connection and it really shows. All right, so we'll put a link to that into our original post and the show notes to this episode, which you can always find at tradcast.org. Just look for episode number 20. Now, in terms of Novus Ordo and specifically Vatican news, 2017 was probably the most grotesque horrific and absurd year yet, at least in recent memory. Let's do a quick review of the biggest stories of the year. In January, we heard the Vatican proclaim that Martin Luther was a witness to the gospel, something that Pope Leo X obviously missed back in the 16th century. Then we had the amusing admission of the Vatican's chief ecumenist, the layman dressed as Cardinal, Kurt Koch. Uh, That among the different partners involved in the ongoing ecumenical dialogue, they cannot even agree on why they're even talking. That's right. Forget agreements on theology. They can't even so much as agree on the point of ecumenism. Hang on. I think that deserves a special effect. Just a second. Yeah, very good. In February, an Anglican Evensong liturgy was celebrated at St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Yep. And then there was the story of Francis fearlessly standing up for tradition. Well, okay, so it was pagan tradition, but come on, okay? In March, uh, the news broke that the Vatican was allegedly working in secret on an ecumenical rite of Mass, which... I don't know if it's true or not, but I think it's kind of beside the point since they already have their ecumenical heretical liturgy with the new mass of Paul VI, so I don't see why they would need another one. Uh, Then in April, Francis committed one of the most heinous acts of blasphemy so far when he claimed in a weekday homily that our Lord Jesus Christ, quote, made himself the devil, unquote, when he died on the cross for us. By the way, all of these stories that I'm referencing here, they're all linked in the show notes to this episode, so you can look them all up uh, at your leisure and get the details and verify that what I'm saying is true. Also in April, Francis sent a video message to the so-called TED conference in Vancouver in which he called for a revolution of tenderness. Yeah, and in the same month, Francis appointed Hellboy as a consultant to the Vatican's Department of Communications. And in case you don't know who Hellboy is, it's the individual the world knows as Father James Martin S.J., which clearly stands for Society of Judas. Then uh, the month of May saw the Francis show at Fatima, where he scared everyone with that monster runs that monstrance that looked like a ventilator or an airplane turbine, it it was hideous, okay? Um, In June, Francis proclaimed the heresy that God cannot be God without man, and the superior general of the Jesuits, Father Arturo Sosa, heretically claimed that the devil is just a symbol for evil. And it was our post on this very story that Archbishop Georg Genswein, who is the prefect of the anti-papal household and the private secretary to Benedict XVI, was asked about in an interview by journalist Paul Bade. In the same month, Francis joined the Campaign for Interreligious Friendship that was launched by the so-called Elijah Interfaith Institute. He appeared as uh, one of the stars there, together with a bunch of, um, you know, heretical uh, pseudo-bishops and muftis and rabbis and whatnot. In July, Francis threw a monkey wrench into the never-ending negotiations with the Society of St. Pius X by suddenly requiring their full acceptance of Vatican II and the legitimacy, not just the validity, but the legitimacy of the Mass of Paul VI, the New Mass. And Francis posted, also in July, a no-complaining sign on his apartment door in the Casa Santa Marta with all the maturity of a 13-year-old. No offense here to 13-year-olds, by the way, okay? Well, when you're 13, you're allowed to do that, okay? Not when you're 80. Uh, Also in July, the Italian philosopher Marcello Perra, who is an atheist, slammed Francis for not being concerned about the salvation of souls. Whoa! I mean, you know it's bad when atheists are complaining that you're not concerned about salvation, okay? In August, Francis invoked his supposed magisterial authority to declare, quote, we can affirm with certainty and with magisterial authority that the liturgical reform is irreversible, unquote. And here he's talking, of course, about the modernist Happy Meal service of Paul VI. In August, Francis also revealed that in the late 1970s he had spent six months in therapy with a Jewish psychoanalyst. And that kind of explains a lot, doesn't it? Then September. In September, an English translation was made available for the first time of the controversial book penned in 1995 by Victor Emmanuel Fernandez, whom Francis appointed Archbishop shortly after his election in 2013, Fernandez is Francis's ghostwriter and one of his main theological advisors. The book in question, written by Fernandez, is called Heal Me With Your Mouth, The Art of Kissing. And uh, we'll just leave it at that. Oh, of course, uh, September also saw the release of the filial correction of Francis for the propagation of heresies. All well, that has predictably gone nowhere, but... Uh, I'm sure it was fun for a few while it lasted. In the month of October, Francis had the Cathedral of Bologna, Italy, cleared of its pews so he could have lunch there, together with a bunch of prisoners, poor people, and refugees. Two of the prisoners, by the way, used the opportunity to escape. Oh, well, maybe they misunderstood the meaning of free lunch. But anyway, on October 31st, the Vatican released a postage stamp honoring Martin Luther—remember that witness to the gospel, right?—honoring Martin Luther for the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Revolution. The stamp showed Luther and his disciple Philip Melanchthon at the foot of the cross of Calvary. In November, just last month, Francis outlawed the sale of cigarettes throughout the entire 0.17 square miles of Vatican City. The reason given was that, quote, the Holy See cannot contribute to an activity that clearly damages the health of people, unquote. Okay, but then not all tobacco products were outlawed, only the sale of cigarettes. Vatican Press Secretary Greg Burke noted, quote, the sale of large cigars, though, will continue since the smoke is not inhaled, unquote. I, you can't make this stuff up, okay? All right, no more cigarettes in Vatican City. On the other hand, heresy is still permitted. And Francis, the same month, once again claimed that Judas Iscariot might not be in hell, directly contradicting the words of Jesus Christ that the son of perdition is lost. See St. John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 12. And wrapping up our little absurd Vatican slash Novus Ordo news year in review... We come to the month of December when Francis blasphemously declared that the Muslim Rohingya tribe in Bangladesh was, quote, the presence of God today, unquote, because they were driven out of Myanmar by the Buddhists. And when visiting Myanmar, Francis had given the country's president a life of Buddha as a gift. Well, why would you give him a life of Christ, for example, right, when you can give him a life of Buddha? Come on. And of course, it was also in December that the Vatican published the latest edition of the Acta Apostolicae Seris, the Acts of the Apostolic See, in which Francis declared that the permissibility of unrepentant adulterers to receive the Noble Sort of Sacraments of Penance and Communion in certain cases is authentic magisterial teaching. And that, ladies and gentlemen, are the highlights, or I should say the lowlights, really. Of 2017, brought to you by the Freemasonic Novus Ordo sect that currently occupies the Catholic structures in Rome. Who knows what 2018 is going to bring, but I'm going to make a prediction here right now that it will just be more of the same. Okay? More heresy, more blasphemy, more absurdity, more of France's apostolic journeys across the globe, and more hand wringing from the recognize and resist traditionalists who will once again do and say anything at all to keep from concluding that Jorge Bergoglio isn't actually the Pope of the Catholic Church. You know, this thing is really reaching such proportions now that you would have to be the world's biggest doofus not to see what's going on here. And honestly, I think that's God's providential design. Our Lord is making it so painfully obvious that the Vatican II sect is not the Catholic Church and its head is not a true Pope, that no one who cares about the truth and dispassionately investigates the matter can fail to come to the right conclusion here before long. I mean, what more has to happen for people to figure this out? Or could it be that some people just don't want to reach the only reasonable conclusion here? It's really frightening to see how many people are so willing to distort and even throw overboard the Catholic teaching on the papacy rather than to say that one particular man's claim to the papacy is false. It's really scary to see that because when you're starting to mess around with doctrine, you're in mortal sin. And if the doctrine in question is a dogma, well, then you're in heresy. And yet so many people act as though Catholic teaching on the church and on the papacy and on the magisterium were just their personal toys that they can play around with so that they can still maintain that Francis is the vicar of Christ. It just doesn't mean anything. These people are playing with fire. Look, no one is saying that you have to have all the answers. Okay, Heaven knows we don't have all the answers here. But just because we can't have all the answers doesn't mean that we can't have some. And it's better to have some very inconvenient answers that we can know to be true than to have a boatload of answers that make you feel good but that are false or at least not known with sufficient certitude. You know, when I look at how many people are still fighting Sedevacanism tooth and nail as though there were not enough evidence yet, I'm always reminded of that gospel passage our lord tells the story of the rich man and lazarus it's uh saint luke chapter 16. finding himself in hell after having lived a godless life of luxury the rich man begs for lazarus to be sent from the dead to his brothers so that they would do penance convert and ultimately be saved and not end up in hell like him but he is told that no they should just hear moses and the prophets. That should be enough. They shouldn't need someone to come back from the dead to appear to them to amend their lives. And he says, no, no, they will convert if they're visited by someone from the dead to warn them. And what does Abraham say in response? Let me quote it to you. It's from Luke 16:31. Uh, quote, and he said to him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rise again from the dead, unquote. Now, what is my point? My point is that it's not right to keep asking for more and more proof beyond that which has long been given, which is more than sufficient. Very often, that's just an excuse, an excuse not to have to admit the evidence and draw the consequences that follow from it, for whatever reason. A few years ago, Jeffrey Knight gave a very informative and helpful talk on that called Culpable Ignorance and the Great Apostasy, which we've linked for you. In the show notes, you know, one of the arguments that is offered sometimes, and in my experience, especially as of late, against state of iconism is that, well, we simply deserve Francis as pope. We get the popes and the bishops we deserve, and so that's why we have Francis and his gang now. And of course, this automatically, this argument automatically stifles all theological discussion of the issue. It's deceptive because it doesn't deal with what is obviously a theological issue on theological grounds. Rather, it appeals to your sense of humility because surely no one would say that we deserve better, right? I mean, aren't we all terrible sinners? Could anyone really say that we don't deserve Bergoglio? Could anyone be so proud as to maintain that? So, this is sometimes used as a knockout argument that shuts up all critics and totally avoids all theology. So, how do we respond to it, though? Well, we respond to it by pointing out that the argument assumes falsely that God gives us what we deserve. He does not. If God gave us what we deserve, well, we would all be in hell or at least headed there, and the Messiah would have never come to deliver and redeem us. No, God does not give us what we deserve. He gives us what is conducive to our salvation. That is the error in the argument. And what is conducive to our salvation? The papacy, for example. The Pope as the guarantor of sound doctrine and church unity. And in the Novus Ordo sect, they have neither, no sound doctrine and no unity. So it's not a question of what we deserve, it's a question of what God has promised us despite our sinfulness, and what these promises permit and exclude as a possibility. Now, one of the things God has promised is a pope who would always, always be the rock to which a Catholic can cling, and be sure that he will not be led astray into any heresy, any schism, any impiety, or any pernicious error. God did not promise that there would always be a pope at all times. He only promised that when there is a pope, he cannot fail in his mission. And if Bergoglio hasn't failed, well, then failing has no meaning. So that is how we answer the objection that God gives us the pope we deserve. No, he doesn't. God will never give us stones when what we need is bread. By the way, did you hear that Francis might canonize as a saint Paul VI next year in 2018? Yeah, the man who gave the world the Vatican II documents, the new mass, the ugly churches, and really almost all of the post-conciliar changes. Yeah, it it looks like he's soon going to be the next ridiculous Ordo saint pope. Because as you know, since 1958, all popes have been saints. John Twenty Third and John Paul II already are. Paul VI is already blessed. And of course, John Paul I has just been declared venerable. So you can see what's going on here. Since Vatican II, there just has been so much papal holiness. I mean, we haven't seen anything like it since the first few centuries. We're just so blessed with this whole new springtime of Vatican II, aren't we? It's amazing. Oh yeah, here, let me share with you a little anecdote I happened to come across the other day while I was doing some research. It shows the holiness of uh, Saint John Twenty Third in action. Quote, Both Pius XII and John the Twenty Third had made serious attempts to reduce the length of religious ceremonies in St. Peter's, but tiring hours officiating in long liturgies under the weight of richly embroidered vestments were still a burden on the Pope's physical stamina. Pope John made it a point not to go through such occasions on an empty stomach. Halfway through the opening ceremony of the Second Vatican Council, he had a reviving cup of espresso and a sandwich while sitting on his throne in the basilica, concealed behind a wall of cardinals and prelates, That was from the book Pope Premier President by Roland Flamini, published in 1980. So can you believe that? The oh-so-holy John Twenty Third was sitting on the usurped papal chair during the council in St. Peter's Basilica, enjoying a meal behind a wall of cardinals because he couldn't wait till the session was over and apparently didn't want to excuse himself. I mean, what do you say to that? Fatso. All right. Uh, well, we got off topic a little bit here, but uh, let's get back to the future canonization of blessed Paul the VI, Giovanni Battista, Montini. By the way, did you know that when Paul VI was lying in state in the Vatican, his skin started to turn dark and ventilators were installed to dispel the intolerable stench that was emanating from his corpse? Yeah, that was uh, in August of 1978. And they had to inject more formaldehyde into his body so they could get him transported from Castel Gandolfo, where he had died, to the Vatican. And that was reported by Time Magazine on August 21st, 1978. You can find that quoted on our Paul VI topical page, which we'll include in the links for you. Yeah, so uh, looks like uh, formaldehyde Paul is now up for canonization after medical doctors and Vatican theologians recognized a miracle that was supposedly worked through his intercession. The miracle being that a baby who could have been miscarried wasn't miscarried, but was born healthy. Yeah, like, that never happens. Clearly evidence of a miracle there. Now, let's not forget, though, that it was Benedict XVI, not Francis. It was Benedict XVI who first put Paul VI on the road to Novos Ordo's sainthood by uh, proclaiming that Montini had lived a life of heroic virtue. Yeah, could have fooled me. That was uh, in 2012. But, you know, this is how the modernist sect works. Not only can anti-Catholic monsters and destroyers of Christendom, like Paul VI, be real popes in the new church, they can even be declared saints. And the supposed traditionalists in the Sordo Church, well, they may complain, but ultimately they don't care. They'll just keep doing what they've been doing, and that is recognize and resist. Latest case in point, Christopher Ferrara, the president of the American Catholic Lawyers Association, contributor to the Fatima Center and star columnist at The Remnant. In his post of December 23rd at FatimaPerspectives.com, he bewails the ridiculous farce that is the potential Paul VI canonization and uh, lays out the options he thinks he has in rejecting it when it happens. He lists the following two options. A canonizations aren't infallible, so therefore even a devil like Montini could be declared a saint, or B, they are infallible, but they really only guarantee that the individual in question made it to heaven, not that his life is worthy of imitation. And above and beyond that, he considers a third way out. Quote, but what if the Pope acts on the basis of a miracle that is not really a miracle? What if the process of canonization is compromised by ideological or other motives that prompt the promoters of the cause to stretch the evidence to fit a preconceived decision to canonize no matter what? I have no answers to these questions, but surely they are valid and demand further theological study. Unquote. Well, actually, uh, instead of asking for further theological study to allow you to kick the can down the road, Mr. Ferreira, you could just look it up in the church's pre Vatican II theology manuals, you know? And when we do that, here's what we find. The following is from uh, Father Joachim Salaveri's De Ecclesia on the Church of Christ, which is part of the famous Sacre Theologiae Summa the eight-volume dogmatic theology collection of the Spanish Jesuits that was just recently released in English translation. Quote, The end of the infallible magisterium demands infallibility concerning these decrees. This is in reference to uh, the decrees of the solemn canonization of saints. For the end of the infallible magisterium demands those things that are necessary in order to direct the faithful without error to salvation – through the correct worship and imitation of the examples of Christian virtues. But for such a purpose, infallibility concerning decrees on the canonization of saints is necessary. Therefore, the end of the infallible magisterium demands infallibility concerning decrees of the solemn canonization of saints. And then a little further down. The Church claims for herself infallibility concerning the solemn decrees of the canonization of saints. For the Church, in a practical manner, claims for herself infallibility concerning the decrees which she defines with a solemn judgment. But the Church, with a solemn judgment, defines the decrees of the canonization of saints." And uh, that was from uh, Numbers 724 and 725 of um, On the Church of Christ by Father Joachim Salaveri from the mid-1950s. Now, there's a lot more, of course, it fleshes it out and, you know, proves the, the various uh, assertions, uh, but obviously I can't quote it all here, but certainly uh, we're happy to link uh, the book to where you can get your own copy so you can read and verify this for yourself. So, yeah, we can just uh, look this stuff up, you know? And the fact that some of these things aren't taught definitively that is infallibly, isn't relevant because we have to adhere to it anyway under pain of mortal sin. Um, Pope Benedict XIV said the following concerning the denial of uh, the infallibility of uh, the canonization of saints. Quote, if it is not heretical, the denial, still it is temerarius, bringing scandal to the whole church, smacking of heresy, affirming an erroneous proposition. We will say this about anyone who dares to assert that the pontiff erred in this or that canonization, that this or that saint canonized by him is not to be honored with the worship of dulia. unquote. And uh, that quote is found once again in Father Salavari's book on the Church of Christ, paragraph number 726. But, as Ferreira asks, what about canonizations that are based on a miracle that isn't really a miracle, or if the motive for the canonization is bad, or whatever, then what? Well, frankly, the answer is, then nothing. It doesn't matter. The infallibility of a canonization does not derive from the process used, or from the purity of the motive, or anything else like that. It couldn't possibly, because no matter what, what process you use, it's always going to be a fallible human process. What's infallible in a canonization is not the process used or the motive for which it's done, but the judgment that a certain soul is in heaven and worthy of our imitation and honor. That is what's infallible, and that infallibility is guaranteed by the Catholic Church, which was founded by God himself and endowed with this privilege of infallibility. And so once again, you can see here that the Neotrads, the recognize and resist traditionalists, do not believe in the Catholic Church. And how could they, seeing that they identify the monstrous Novus Ordo sect with the Immaculate Bride of Christ? Back in 2011, after John Paul II was beatified by Benedict XVI, Ferrera wrote an article for The Remnant in which he said that it would be impossible for the Church to declare him a saint in a formal canonization. Well, but that's exactly what Francis did in 2014. But then, how can we reject the absurd canonization of Paul VI, or John Paul II? Well, there is one option that doesn't conflict with Catholic teaching in the least— and it's also the one option that Ferrera curiously does not mention. And that is the consideration that the man who performs the canonization, Francis, is not a valid pope. That would explain how all of this can happen, wouldn't it? But of course, Ferrera won't go there. Nope, can't do it. Better to distort and deny all of Catholic teaching than to say that the infernal apostate occupying the Vatican is not the vicar of Christ. And for what? It's such a shame. You know, if all who call themselves traditional Catholics refused to recognize Francis as a legitimate pope, he would have a huge dent in his credibility. Always keep that in mind. At the end of the day, Francis doesn't care if people resist him as long as they consider him a valid pope. Why? Because that is what gives him all his putative power and authority. Right? I mean, if the world didn't think that this man is the pope, he couldn't do what he's doing. So it's very important that we shout from the rooftops that he is not the pope. That is his Achilles heel. Take that away from him, and there's nothing left but Jorge the Apostate. Alright, I think it's time for a quick break. You can take a moment to refill your coffee or tea, and then head right back here, because we're going to go full steam ahead with more Tradcast. It's Novos Ordo watch for your ears. Tradcast. Are you interested in truly Catholic radio programming, one that addresses not only the current crisis in the church and world, but also discusses literature, art, doctrine, spirituality, and current events? Then tune in to member-supported Restoration Radio at www.restorationradionetwork.org.
1: Restoration Radio, the network for the thinking Catholic.
0: If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Tradcast. See? That was quick, wasn't it? Very quick. Tratcast number 20 continues now, and I am ready to make a prediction. Yes, a prediction. I'm going to go way out on a limb here and say that when Francis dies, the only reason there will be so many people attending his funeral is to make sure that he's really getting buried. Now, speaking of Francis, let's take a look at what the Vatican's chief apostate had to say in his general audience of December 13th of this year. The topic was the obligation of going to Mass on Sundays and Holy Days. Francis said, quote, We don't go to Mass to give God something, but to receive from Him what we truly need, unquote. False, false, false. Now, of course, we receive graces from assisting at Mass, especially, but not only if we receive Holy Communion worthily. But to say that we don't go to Mass in order to give God anything is plainly false and quite possibly even heretical. Every Catholic child who's made his first Holy Communion knows that the Holy Mass, and I'm talking about the real Catholic Mass, not the noble sort of Worship Service, The real Catholic Mass is offered for four ends, to adore God, to thank God, to make reparation for sin to God, and to petition God. And with the exception of the last one, all of these are things we give to God, adoration, thanksgiving, and reparation. Now, it's good to see Francis admit that in the Ordo worship service, that isn't the case because that's yet another piece of evidence proving that the modernist Happy Meal isn't the Catholic Mass. It's long been clear, by the way, that the modernist Mass isn't meant to be a propitiatory sacrifice offered to Almighty God. Instead, the impression has always been given from the very beginning that Mass is something primarily for man, for the people who attend, and that's also why everyone always wants to receive communion. For most people, And I don't think I'm exaggerating here. For most people, going to Mass without receiving communion doesn't really make any sense. Because in the Novus Ordo Church, Mass is essentially just a meal. And why would you attend a meal if you're not going to partake of it, right? And so that's why, even though hardly anyone goes to confession, everyone lines up for communion. Now listen to what the Council of Trent decreed in the 16th century, against the Protestant revolutionaries. Quote, If anyone says that in the Mass a true and real sacrifice is not offered to God or that the act of offering is nothing else than Christ being given to us to eat, let him be anathema. Unquote. That's Trent Session 22, Canon 1. You can find it in Denzinger 948. Here it's probably a good idea to answer an objection that is typically raised at this point, and that is the argument that God doesn't need our praise, thanksgiving, or adoration. Well, of course he doesn't need it, but that doesn't mean we do not owe it to him. See, very often this gets confused. Just because someone doesn't need something doesn't mean I don't owe it to him. For example, if I borrow $20 from a millionaire, that means I owe him $20. I can't say, well, he doesn't need the $20, so therefore I don't owe it to him. No, it has nothing to do with that. So likewise, we have a strict obligation to render to God all our worship and love. Remember the greatest commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart and with thy whole soul and with thy whole mind, and with thy whole strength. That's Mark 12, 30. Now, that's a commandment, an order. It's not a nice suggestion or an ideal. So, we owe this to God, and part of how we fulfill this obligation is by offering him, so far as we can, the holy sacrifice of the Mass through the hands of the priest. All right, changing gears now, I'd like to get to an interview that was given by Louis Varecchio a few months ago. No, I think it was last month, actually. Uh, Varecchio runs a blog at akacatholic.com, and in terms of his theological position, he is essentially a recognize-and-resist adherent, though he no longer believes that Francis is a valid pope. He thinks that Benedict Sixteenth is the pope— And so he would fall into the category of resignationism, the position that Benedict XVI's resignation was invalid. And so Francis couldn't validly be elected pope since Benedict is still reigning. Now, that's a completely indefensible position, but that's not the issue we're going to discuss now. Instead, I'd like to go through uh, the first quarter hour or so of the interview Louis Varecchio gave to Catholic culture. And that's culture spelled K-U-L-C-H-U-R. And uh, the audio of that is available on YouTube. And, of course, we have that link for you in the show notes already. So all you need to do is click, okay? The interview was published on uh, November 17th as episode number one of the Catholic Culture Podcast called Saturday Night Trad. And then the portion that I want to examine Varecchio enunciates so many anti-Catholic howlers that run afoul of Catholic doctrine that I just can't let this go. This has to be addressed and refuted because it's such an affront to the Church's teaching. In that interview, Varecchio really exemplifies what is wrong with the recognize and resist position. We'll begin at the 2 minute and 53 second mark. Here's Louis Varecchio talking about conservative Novos Ordos.
1: Their biggest fault is that they sincerely believe that what the Holy Fathers, since the council have handed to us, including the new mass, is good nourishment for the soul. That we can trust them explicitly, just as a child could trust its, its loving parents. And unfortunately, that's a
0: mistake. What Veracchio says here is absolutely crazy and very detrimental to faith and piety. The problem isn't that Novus Ordo's are being obedient and childlike in their trust of the Church, the problem is that they mistakenly think that the Novus Ordo sect is the Catholic Church. The attitude is not what's wrong here. It's the identification of the modernist sect with the Church of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is why it is so important for people to point out and emphasize that the Holy See is vacant and that that modernist monstrosity although it's occupying the Catholic structures, is not the Catholic Church because it cannot possibly be. Here, let's have a quick look at uh, what the 19th century priest, Father Frederick Faber, said in a sermon given in 1861, which has been published in a little booklet entitled Devotion to the Church. Quote, But we may forget and sometimes do forget that it is not only not enough to love the church, but that it is not possible to love the church rightly unless we also fear and reverence it. Our forgetfulness of this arises from our not having laid sufficiently deeply in our minds the conviction of the divine character of the Church. The very amount of human grandeur which there is round the Church causes us to forget occasionally that it is not a human institution. Hence comes that wrong kind of criticism which is forgetful or regardless of the divine character of the Church. Hence comes our setting up our own minds and our own views as criteria of truth, as standards for the Church's conduct. Hence comes sitting in judgment on the government and policy of popes. Hence comes that unfilial and unsage carefulness to separate in all matters of the Church and papacy what we consider to be divine from what we claim to be human." Hence comes the disrespectful fretfulness to distinguish between what we must concede to the church and what we need not concede to the church. Hence comes that irritable anxiety to see that the supernatural is kept well subordinated to the natural, as if we really believed we ought just now to strain every nerve lest a too credulous world should be falling a victim to excessive priestcraft and ultramontanism. Only let us once really master the truth that the Church is a divine institution, and then we shall see that such criticism is not simply a baseness and a disloyalty, but an impertinence and a sin, Now, how far Louis Varecchio's position is removed from that? And why? Why? Because he believes the Vatican II Popes to be true Popes, with the exception of Francis. Well, here's more of Varecchio. Now we're at five minutes and 41 seconds. This
1: is Francis's solitary gift to the church, and that is opening the eyes of people who were previously blind to the fact that the popes really can mislead the faithful, and they really can say and do things that are injurious to the faith.
0: No, they cannot, at least not in the exercise of their magisterium and their official governance of the church and so forth. They are divinely prevented from doing something that is in and of itself heretical or injurious to faith or morals, as is clear from Catholic teaching on the papacy. Now, I don't mean to elaborate here now, but I do want to uh, just you know, remind everyone once again of, of one quote uh, from Pope Pius the Ninth. "Quote: Religion itself can never totter and fall while this chair," he's referring to the chair of Saint Peter. "While this chair remains intact, the chair which rests on the rock, which the proud gates of hell cannot overthrow, and in which there is the whole and perfect solidity of the Christian religion." Unquote, and that is from his encyclical Inter number seven. Now back to Varecchio. we are now at uh, six minutes and uh, 43 seconds, and here he's talking about the Novus Ordo Mise, the new Mass of Paul Sixth.
1: And the reason is because I've come to the conclusion, and I think for a very good reason, that that liturgy is offensive to the Lord. And it's offensive to the Lord because it's injurious to the people who attend that
0: Mass? No, the new Mass is not offensive to God because it is bad for the people. It is offensive to God primarily because it is not true Catholic worship. It is heretical, blasphemous, and sacrilegious. That's why it's offensive to God. A little bit later in the interview, Erecchio himself says that the new Mass is a false law of prayer and therefore establishes a false law of belief. And that the novel sort of funeral mass, the so called mass of Christian burial, contains heresy in the text of the Missal itself. Now, realizing that it is, of course, absurd to say that the Catholic Church can give to her children a heretical mass that is offensive to God and leads people out of the church, Varecchio goes ahead and draws an absolutely absurd inference. Here he is at the 12-minute, 56-second mark.
1: Would Holy Mother Church herself hand to the children of the Church a liturgy that teaches them heresy, keeping in mind that the law of prayer establishes the law of belief? And the answer to that is obviously no. And so the conclusion that must be drawn from that realization, and it's a difficult thing to look at squarely, I must admit, but once you look at it, you have to realize this Mass did not come from Holy Mother Church. It came to us through the hands of sinful men, Paul VI, Annabale Bonini, and others. It's not the liturgy of the
0: Church. Unbelievable. Of course, the modernist Mass did not come from the Catholic Church, but from anti-Catholics like Paul VI and Anibale Bonini, but... Varecchio believes Paul VI was a true pope and Bonini a legitimate Roman Catholic archbishop. That is absurd. If Paul VI was a true pope and the new mass came from Paul VI, then guess what? Then the new mass came from the church. Okay, These people like Varecchio, they always want a papacy without consequences. It's unbelievable. No, if Paul VI was the pope, then his church is the Catholic Church, and the worship service he inflicted upon all is the valid and legitimate, spotless Roman Catholic Mass. That is what follows from holding Paul VI to have been a true Pope. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. You cannot have Paul VI as Pope and yet not have his Mass. So for Varecchio to say that the new mass did not come from the Catholic Church and yet came from a true pope is absurdity on stilts. It's theological Disneyland. All right, one last clip. Now we're at the 15-minute, 6-second mark.
1: There are many, and I know many, uh, daily communicants who go to the Novus Ordo who are wonderful people who are you know, trying desperately, heroically even, to live their faith. And their greatest fault is the same
0: one that I had some years ago, and that is trusting the things that the popes have told us. Again, no, their fault is not trusting popes. Their fault is in identifying someone as pope who isn't pope and to whom, therefore, the divine assistance given to the papacy does not apply. See, the Masons and uh, the other enemies of the church were smart. They knew that the only way to destroy the Catholic Church was to put in a false pope. Catholics were always going to obey and be led by the pope. So they needed to put in a false pope, an anti-pope, but make everybody believe that he was the true pope. Since a false pope would not be protected by papal infallibility, nor be assisted in any way by the Holy Ghost, a false pope could do whatever he pleased. Now, of course, the Catholic Church can never be destroyed, but she can become very small. She started off, we recall, as just a handful of people in the upper room on Pentecost Sunday. That was the true church right there. The Catholic Church can never be overcome by the powers of hell— But like her divine Lord, she can seem to be overcome for a short while, and that's what we're experiencing right now. Fear not, only believe, our Lord said in St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 36. Do we then truly believe? We walk by faith and not by sight, St. Paul says, in a second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 7. But what do the recognizing and resistors do? Instead of faithfully clinging to the church's teachings on the papacy and therefore rejecting the papal impostors in Rome, these supposed traditionalists decide to junk the Catholic teaching instead of junking the papal claimants. It is unbelievable. See, it's entirely possible that a certain man who claims to be pope isn't pope but it is not possible and quite injurious to the faith to say that the Catholic teaching is false. Now, another example of how wrongheaded this whole recognize and resist thing is can be found in an article published on December 7th, 2017 at the 1 Peter 5 website. The essay is entitled Authentic Magisterium and Religious Submission by one Dr. John Joy, who is the co-founder and president of the St. Albert the Great Center for Scholastic Studies. Now, Joy spends most of his time arguing that the authentic magisterium is not infallible. That is true, but big deal, so what? Well, Joy says if it's not infallible, then it means it could contain error. Yes, that is true too, but it could never be a serious error, an error that has a harmful effect. And it could most certainly not contain heresy. You see, some people think that just because something isn't guaranteed to be free from error means that it could contain heresy. But no, that doesn't follow. Heresy is a very specific kind of error and one that is extremely pernicious because it poisons the soul. Think about it. If the papal magisterium, the authentic or non-infallible kind, could teach you heresy something that directly contradicts God's very revelation, what would that say about the church? The church would not only not be the ark of salvation, the church would not be credible even as a human institution. And she's a divine institution, one founded and commissioned by God himself to teach supernatural truth and be our safe guide to eternal salvation. So, although a papal teaching that is only taught with the authentic magisterium, and uh, authentic here means authoritative, by the way, although uh, such a teaching could conceivably contain error, it could not contain any error that is detrimental to souls and most certainly not heresy. If that were possible, the church couldn't possibly demand submission of intellect and will, but that's exactly what she does. Every Catholic must adhere to authentic magisterial teaching externally under pain of usually mortal sin, and almost everyone must adhere to it even internally, meaning give it his real assent of the mind. The only people who are sometimes permitted not to assent internally are specially qualified theologians who are as familiar, if not more familiar, with the subject matter as the Vatican's own theologians and have serious reasons to suspect that the teaching is in error. But even those few theological experts who are permitted to withhold internal assent are still required to give external assent until their objections have been cleared up by the Vatican. Don't believe it? Well, let's look it up. For example, we can use Monsignor Gerard van Nort's Dogmatic Theology, which is available in English, Volume 3, Divine Faith. There's uh, quite a lot there, but let me just quote a little bit from section 254, and I'm quoting here from pages 274 and 275. Quote, The assent given is always founded on the presumption that the authentic magisterium even though it can err, has de facto not erred. But this presumption admits of degrees. When some decree is laid down, the normal condition of the general run of the faithful is as follows. Either they will not have any arguments of great importance to the contrary, or if they do have some strong reasons, they will rather easily say to themselves, Those reasons are not hidden from the magisterium, and still it has not refrained from making an apodictical judgment. Consequently, it must have found those arguments superficial and not solidly grounded. Now, people in that condition should unqualifiedly adhere to the magisterium's teaching as at least practically certain, that is, uniquely probable for in the position described, the presumption in favor of the magisterium sufficiently eliminates purely private arguments. Still, if these arguments are rather serious ones so that, in a sense, they somewhat weaken the aforesaid presumption, an opinionative assent to the decree as to the more probable position would suffice. In fact, it can even happen that some expert in the field might have reasons so very serious and solid to the contrary that it would be licit for him to suspend all assent until infallible authority makes its intervention, meanwhile keeping a reverential silence, unquote. And here you can see that although an expert may be permitted, if he has sufficient reason, to withhold his internal assent, nevertheless he must remain silent externally. In other words, he must externally still give his assent, at least in terms of not contradicting the teaching. And so that is the Catholic position on the authentic magisterium. And I really don't understand why websites like 1 Peter 5 uh, and others always publish articles by these academics like Roberto de Mattei or in in this case Dr. John Joy uh, that try to explain from scratch how to understand the Catholic magisterium when you can simply look it up. Just grab the church's own dogmatic theology manuals from before Vatican II and look it up. And yeah, some of these manuals even answer objections people have brought up from church history, like, you know, the famous cases of Popes Liberius and Honorius I, John the XXII, and so forth. So we really don't need to reinvent the wheel here. We can just look it up and simply go by the pre-Vatican II teaching. As a matter of fact, we have to. But of course, I know that the recognize and resist crowd has a huge incentive to try to modify that uh, pre-Vatican II teaching so as to make it fit somehow with the idea that Jorge Bergoglio and his five predecessors of unhappy memory are valid popes of the Catholic Church. In his own explanation of the kind of submission of intellect and will that is required uh, for the authentic magisterium, Dr. John Joy says the following, quote, Normally, of course, it means that the teaching in question should be accepted as true, though with the awareness that it could be false. In the scholastic terminology, this is the kind of assent characteristic of opinions rather than knowledge. When I say I know that something is true, my assent is certain. When I say I think that something is true, my assent is given, but without certainty and with a recognition of the possibility of error. Due to the assistance of the Holy Spirit given to the Church, we can be sure that instances of error in this kind of authentic teaching are rare, and yet since they are possible, our response must also take that into account. So, what does the obligation of religious submission mean for Catholics in individual cases of teaching from the authentic magisterium? I think it can be summed up best by saying that we should accept that teaching as true precisely to the extent that it does not conflict with irreformable Catholic doctrine, unquote. Aye, 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 So after telling us that saying I think rather than I know means we are aware that we could be wrong about what we're going to say, Joy then says, I think we should accept the teaching as true insofar as it doesn't contradict irreformable Catholic teaching. I thought that was funny you know, maybe we should just let the church tell us to what extent and in what way to adhere to our own teaching, irreformable or not. And certainly this idea that each one of the faithful has to figure out for himself what constitutes what level of magisterium and then decide whether it contradicts something prior that is irreformable isn't going to work. And I think Joy just showed that because In the end, all he can do is give us an opinion on what we should accept or reject, and that opinion is certainly no better than the authentic magisterium itself. So, if we're going to be traditional Catholics, well, maybe we should actually adhere to traditional Catholic doctrine. How's that for a New Year's resolution? All right, time now to wrap it up. Ladies and gentlemen, 2017 is over a big thank you to all who supported us in whatever way during this past year please continue to do so in the new year as well without your help this work simply cannot be accomplished happy new year and god bless you